Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Last time we focused on the two main translation theories, formal and dynamic equivalence. This time we need to take a look at five major default decisions translation teams make at the outset, which include which include one, the units of measurement and currency that they use, two, Hebrew idioms, three, English vocabulary, four, editorial enhancements, and five, how to translate God's name. By becoming familiar with these five topics, and then also the one in our next episode on the subject of gender, you'll be able to better assess English Bible translations and less susceptible to misunderstandings. Here now is episode 343, part 14 of our Bible class, Bible translation default decisions. Instead of really introducing this a lot, I just want to dive right into units of measurement to show you how this all works. So let's look at a verse, Numbers chapter 28, verse 11. The NRSV reads, At the beginnings of your months you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, two young bulls, also three-tenths of an ephah of choice flour for a grain offering. Whereas the CSB reads, at the beginning of each of your months, present a burnt offering to the Lord, two young bulls with six quarts of fine flour, mixed with oil as a grain offering. All right, so this verse illustrates for us the difference between preserving the original units found in the Hebrew text, or the Greek text, or converting them to accessible units that people would be familiar with. So the NRSV rendered it very exactly. This is what a formal equivalence translation does, right? They, they stick to the original as much as possible. Three-tenths of an ephah. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you went to the store and bought an ephah of grain? <laughs> nobody, nobody buys an ephahs. I mean, maybe bushels, but uh, not ephahs. So, uh, this really is a question that translators have to decide on ahead of time. Are we going to convert everything or are we going to preserve the original units and put the work on the person to do the conversion, put the work on the person to figure it out? A lot of times your more literal translations are going to transfer that work to the reader, but then also supply a footnote with the conversion in it. So you can, and, and vice versa, the functional equivalent will give you the conversion and then a footnote with the original units in it. Other examples of units include baths, cubits, minas, shekels, and talents, uh, or even a denarius. For example, a denarius is a day's wages. So do you, do you want uh, wages for a day to be in your translation, or do you want them to translate that or convert that to whatever a day's wage is worth in your part of the world where they're doing the translation? And then if so, because of economics and everything, 10 years later, the number would be totally different, or 50 years later, depending on how, how stable the economy is, right? So, or do you put denarius just in the text and leave it as it is? So these are all the question of units of measurement and currency. All right, moving on then, let's consider Hebrew idioms. Every language has idioms. English has so many idioms. I'm under the weather. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that it's raining on me. It doesn't mean that there's a cloud over my... No, it just means I'm sick. I'm under the weather. I'm sick. Uh, it's not rocket science. When we say that, what does that mean? That means, hey, this isn't that hard to figure out. Or hang in there. That doesn't even strike me as much of an idiom, but 
it, it, we, we know it's an idiom because when you look at each of the constituent words, it doesn't add up to the meaning that we're assigning that phrase, right? If I say to somebody who understands English as a second language, if I say to them, hang in there, what does that mean? Suspend your body from some object and hold on to it? That's what hang in there means. But what we really mean is don't quit, persevere, uh, or bite the bullet. That means accept the inevitable. But bite the bullet, you know, unless you're familiar with like the wartime expression of, you know, biting a bullet during surgery, you're never gonna you're never gonna figure it out. Like you just have to know that. It, so it is with Hebrew. So it is with Greek. And it's interesting too because in the Greek New Testament, since the people thought in a Hebrew way, you end up with some Hebrew idioms in Greek in the Greek language. Uh, we find this a lot in the Septuagint as well. So let's look at a couple of examples here. Amos chapter 4, verse 6 in the NASB says, But I gave you also cleanness of teeth. Let me ask you a question. Does that sound like a good thing? I would love some cleanness of teeth, right? Wouldn't you love some cleanness of teeth? Uh, but this is what it says. I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Hmm, that's interesting. So lack of bread does not sound like a good thing. The NIV translates it, I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town. This is in Hebrew what we call a synonymous parallelism where you have two lines saying the same thing with different words and from that maybe you can figure out that cleanness of teeth is something similar to a lack of bread. Well, guess what? You have clean teeth when you don't have any food. <laughs> That's totally different than what we would think of. So the NASB very faithfully renders it according to the original languages and puts the onus on the reader to be able to figure this out. The NIV says, look, nobody's going to understand this. Let's just use a different body part that more communicates the same meaning today. So instead of clean teeth, empty stomach. Uh, let's look at another example. This is Psalm 60, verse 8. The NIV reads, Moab is my wash basin. On Edom, I toss my sandal. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. I toss my sandal. Now, the NIV, this is a 2011 NIV. As, by the way, all of my quotations from all the different Bible versions that I am going to be using for this class, I use the latest version that I have access to. All right, so we're going to talk more next time about the NIV 1984 versus the TNIV versus the 2011 update. Just assume that whatever I'm using is the latest version that's possible in the year 2020. So just to clarify that. Now, the NIV in the last slide translated the idiom, cleanness of teeth to empty stomachs. But in this slide, it preserved the idiom, I toss my sandal, whereas the NLT reads, but Moab, my wash basin, will become my servant, and I will wipe my feet on Edom, and I will shout in triumph on Philistia. So these, these are all parallel, but the, really the most important one here is I will wipe my feet on Edom. So instead of toss my sandal, it's wipe my feet. Now, does that make a little more sense to us? Sure, sure. When's the last time you tossed your sandal? And what did it mean? Did it mean that you were wiping your feet on somebody? Did it mean you were disgracing them or humiliating them? No, no, it just meant that you were throwing your sandals across the room, right? It didn't mean anything. Uh, so the NLT found a functionally equivalent phrase for this, whereas the NIV, preserve, interestingly enough, preserved the original. 
Uh, now, should we expect, this is, this is a question that translators decide at the outset, should we expect readers to do the research when they encounter a Hebrew or Greek idiom, or should they sanitize it? Should they just translate it out and substitute an English equivalent that's easy to understand? This is what translators decide at the outset. All right, moving on then to our third category of these default decisions, English vocabulary. Do you preserve the Bible's technical terminology? We talked about this a little bit last time. Justification, sanctification, regeneration, propitiation, atonement, these kinds of words. These are the kinds of words the Bible uses. You render it into English, this is what it's going to sound like. Or do you translate that instead of saying, Justification made right with God or, or uh, cleared away of guilt or something like that. Instead of sanctification, made holy. So the translator is going to have to decide how, what kind of English vocabulary are we, we expecting of our readers. Is it a 12th grade level? Is it a 6th grade level? Is it we're not going to worry about that and we're just going to be as faithful as we can to the originals like the NASB, ESV, that style? Or are we going to limit it? There are missionary Bibles that are written at like a 3rd grade level that are intentionally designed to use as few English words as possible so that you can easily get the understanding. But guess what? Now you're going to get a fatter Bible because you're spelling everything out you're using multiple words for the same word in other places. So these are all a series of trade-offs. What about foreign groups like Pharisees, Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, even just a synagogue? Or what about the, la the Sabbath day's journey? How far is a Sabbath day's journey? And then what about slavery? This is another major issue with English vocabulary. Do you use the term slave or do you use the term servant? And you see a lot of translations that go on either side of that particular question because antebellum slavery in America is totally different than Roman slavery. And Roman slavery is quite different than Jewish slavery. So you, you've got slavery passages in the Old Testament. You've got slavery in the New Testament. There's a lot of similarity there, but neither of them are really the same, at least to the level of nastiness, that we saw in America with the slavery that was practiced before the Civil War. But if you are an American, and you're reading an American English translation, and you see the word slave, and you're not educated about the difference between Jewish slavery and American slavery, or Roman slavery and Jewish slavery, you just see the word slave, you assume somebody kidnapped and distinguished by their race and that is uh, treated harshly. That, but that's not necessarily what the Bible is talking about. So some translations are going to use servant. Well, then the problem with servant is, in our way of thinking, a servant is somebody who is free to go, right? Uh, and slaves, by definition, are not free to go. That's pretty much what it means to be a slave. So these are all issues of English vocabulary that have to be decided at the outset before you even start translation. Let me show you an example of this. Matthew 5.22 in the NLT reads, if you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court, and if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Uh, this is a famous part from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the NAB, which is a Catholic Bible, uh, although, in my estimation, a very good translation, reads, whoever says to his brother, Raka. What? <laughs> Raka is actually what Matthew wrote. He did not write idiot, and he could have written idiot, uh, but he wrote Raka. Uh, and this brings us to the subject of Aramaisms.
Aramaisms are times when, especially Mark, but also a little bit in Matthew, and I'm not sure if, I don't think John has any, but maybe Luke has a little bit, where you have an Aramaic expression preserved in the Greek Gospels that were written. So, for example, this word raka here. Matthew could have just put a Greek word there. Raka is not a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word. He spelled out an Aramaic word with Greek letters so that you would get the exact flavor of what Jesus said in this situation. Uh, and then in the next case, he says, uh, whoever says to his brother Raka will be answerable to the Sanhedrin. Whoever says you fool will be liable to fiery Gehenna. So fool, he translated. But Raka, he did not translate. So should the translator follow Matthew's cue? Or is the translator going to put the reader's understanding first? And then last of all, the complete Jewish Bible reads, whoever calls his brother you good for nothing will be brought before the Sanhedrin that whoever says fool incurs the penalty of burning in the fire of Gehenam. Okay, so we've got a couple of differences to look at here. First of all, the NLT calls, translates it as idiot, the NAB translates it as raka, and the CJB translates it as you good for nothing. Right, so these are three different ways to look at the same word. Do you translate it based on English vocabulary or do you preserve the original? Then the second is where do you take this person who does this thing? Do you take this person to court or the Sanhedrin? Did you notice that? You have court for the NLT, Sanhedrin for the NAB, Sanhedrin for the NJB. And then last of all, the term Gehenna in Greek is going to be translated by the NLT, fires of hell, by the NAB, Gehenna. That is not a translation, ladies and gentlemen. That's a transliteration. They just took the Greek word that was there and they spelled it in English letters, which is interesting, right? Makes you think it's a place instead of a concept. And then the CJB goes even further and sort of uh, Hebraicizes it, Gehenam, the Valley of Hinnom, which is an actual location in Jerusalem. So these are different translations making different decisions. But it's, it's even more than that. You have lots of other words that get transliterated in a lot of English translations, like Sheol. Sheol is a word that means the realm of the dead, roughly equivalent to the grave or the realm of the grave. In the New Testament, we see the word Hades. And it's become fashionable among translators to, instead of actually translate it as the realm of the dead or the pit or the grave, as the older translations did, to just spell it out in English letters, Sheol or Hades, rather than translating it, which always should indicate to you that there's something going on. If, if, you, if you're reading an English Bible and you encounter a non-English word, and it's not like the name of a person or a place, you should always say to yourself, wait a second, I thought this was a translation. Yeah, so uh, other examples would be like Selah, they never translate Selah in the Psalms, or I won't say never, I'm sure there's probably some that do. Many translations do not translate Selah because they're not really sure what it means. Uh, what about Leviathan in Job? Have you ever encountered Leviathan? Nobody ever translates Leviathan. Leviathan's a Hebrew word, it's not an English word. And they do that because they're not sure what the English equivalent should be. Uh, so these are all important questions. How far do you go in relating to the present day audience's world? That's really a question for the functional equivalence philosophy. How far do you go?
at what point do you say, all right, well, we're getting too far away from the text now, let's, let's rein it back in. Let's look at the cotton patch version. I mentioned this last week. This is what it says for Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. You're going to love this. When John noticed that a lot of Protestants and Catholics showing up for his dipping, he said to them, You sons of snakes, who put the heat on you to run from the fury about to break over your heads? You must give some proof that you've had a change of heart. And don't think that you can feed yourselves that, Oh, we good white people stuff, because I'm telling you, that, yes, I said that right. I'm tell you that if God wants to, he can make white folks out of this pile of rocks. So I turned on my Georgia accent just a little bit there. It, it just came out on its own. Sorry to any uh, native Georgians watching this. but uh, So this is the Cotton Patch version translated by really a brilliant philologist. This, this man, Clarence Jordan, who, who did this, has a PH, or he had a PhD in Greek for translating. And he was really, really an inspiring guy to me for many other reasons, not necessarily for his translation here. But what's he doing? He, he's living in Georgia on a farm that's integrated with white people and black people, and he's, he's really pursuing a lot of racial reconciliation in an age where it's not acceptable, and in a place where it's not acceptable. And he wants to, to give his people a translation that they immediately understand. There's no, none of this, like, what's going... So they, instead of talking about Jews or Gentiles or Pharisees or Sadducees and all these, or Jerusalem, he, he, substitu I mean, there, he substitutes for Pharisees Protestants and for Sadducees Catholics. I mean, talk about an anachronism. There are no Protestants or Catholics at this time that Jesus is talking, right? But... His audience gets it because who in their world was the Pharisee? Who in their world was the Sadducee? Oh, it was the Protestant, it was the Catholic of that time and that place. So Clarence Jordan decided to substitute that. When you first encounter his translation, you're like, man, this guy's wild. He's out there. But if you nuance it by understanding the situation he's in, that instead of saying children of Abraham, he says white people. Uh, children of Abraham was sort of like a privilege mindset that Jewish people had at the time of Jesus. Oh, we're children of Abraham. Don't tell us we've ever been, we've never been slaves to anybody. Who do you think you are? We're children of Abraham. It sounded like white privilege to Clarence Jordan. So he translates it, we good white people. <laughs> so that's uh, really an interesting translation that, you know, 50 years later just would not fly at all, especially in other parts of the country of the United States or in other English speaking countries of the world. It just doesn't make any sense at all. But at that time, it did make sense. And so that was his functional equivalence decision that he made as far as the English language goes. He knew his people didn't know about those terms, so he found relative terms in their world. And, you know, missionaries do this all the time. So really, again, it's that trade-off. Do you want somebody to immediately get the force of Scripture, or do you want them to have to do the work, do the education, to understand Scripture on its own terms and its own historical context? Uh, moving on then to editorial enhancements, our fourth category. So we looked at units, Hebrew idioms, English vocabulary, now editorial enhancements. There are many types of editorial enhancements. We can't get into detail on all of them, but here are a few that I brainstormed. First of all, chapters that came into our translations in the 13th century. Verses came in in the 16th century. Paragraph headings, most Bibles have these nowadays. You have cross-references 
Cross-references are editorializations. They're what somebody thinks is a similar verse to the verse you're reading. And uh, there is an opportunity for theological bias there, believe it or not. Uh, capitalized pronouns. That became all the rage in like the late 90s, uh, early 2000s. And then now it's, it's, it's less and less we're seeing the uh, capitalized pronouns in reference to God, for example. Uh, then you have poetic spacing. A lot of translations will do that. Then you have Old Testament quotations in the New Testament. Uh, many translations will put some sort of emphasis in the New Testament when they're quoting the Old Testament, either quotation marks or the NASB famously capitalizes every letter in a quotation, uh, which, of course, in 1995 when they did that, uh, there wasn't such a precedent as there is today that if you capitalize all the words in a sentence, it's like yelling. It's like you're angry. Uh, but uh, that wasn't the standard in uh, 1995, uh, or italics, right? Uh, when the King James people put the italicized words in to indicate that words had been added in, it's very different than today. In the NASB, same thing. It's very different than today. Today, you italicize words to emphasize them, to give them more punch. Uh, and these are the words that aren't even there. So these are supposed to be like de-emphasized. So it's, it's, it's ironic how these things change over time. Uh, but those are editorializations as well. Then you have study notes. Um, a lot of Bibles have study notes or commentary at the bottom of the page. Then you have textual notes about manuscripts, translation notes with alternatives, book introductions. Ever since uh, at least Martin Luther, um, his Bible had these very lengthy introductions to each of the books of the New Testament, really priming readers to read it the way he wanted them to think about it, to import his theology into their reading of Scripture. And then you have red words editions of the Bible where all the words of Jesus are a different color. It's interesting they don't do that for, for God, right? They just do it for Jesus. I don't know what the deal is with that. But uh, there, I guess there's a, a mindset behind it. Like Jesus' words are our charter for life and how we're going to carry on ourselves as Christians. We want to pay careful attention to the words of Jesus so they're in red print. So you have that, that's an editorialization. And sometimes there's an ambiguity where it's not clear. Are these the words of Jesus or are these the words of someone else? And the red words is actually nudging you in a certain direction to think these are or aren't uh, the words of Jesus in that situation. Then, more recently, we have, I think it's just in the last 10 years or so, I mean, maybe there were some before, but uh, these readers' editions of the Bible where you get the Bible with everything stripped away. And it's this like radical hipster new practice of no verses uh, and some of them will just like even get rid of the chapters too and uh, it's just a clean text the bible is a novel right and uh, so you see that sometimes today as well well actually that's a lot closer to what we had in the manuscripts at least the oldest manuscripts where it's just word after word line after line I don't have anything against editorial enhancements i, I just want you to be aware of them they are not inspired by God. They're just helpful things that the publishers are using to help you read the Bible. And they might be right, they might be wrong, uh, they might have theological bias in them, so just be aware of them. Next up we have God's name. Most versions follow the Septuagint, the Old Testament translation into Greek, which translated God's name to the word Lord. Kyrios in Greek. 
so English translations change nearly 7,000 instances of God's name in the Old Testament to Lord, all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, where it really says yod heh vav or as is typically translated, Yahweh. This, I, I, I really struggle with this because it, you, you have formal equivalents, you have functional equivalents, okay? Formal equivalents would be like, all right, there's a name here, we want to correspond to that form, so you want to put a name, not a title, you want to put a name. And even if you can't get exact confidence that Yahweh is the correct pronunciation, maybe it's Yehovah, maybe it's something else, at least you want to put something in there that's as close as you can confidently get. Formal equivalence translations, by and large, do not do that. They substitute the word Lord for the word Yahweh. Functional equivalence translations, I don't know what the functional equivalent of a name is. Typically, names are just names, right? And yet, they all do it as well. So I, I think doing this, this practice of substituting Lord for Yahweh, actually violates both translation philosophies, since it neither offers the right word or the right thought for the name of God. Now, a few translations have bucked the trend, leaving Yahweh or Jehovah. The King James Version famously included Jehovah four times in the text. The NEB included it two times. The NLT, seven times. Uh, but there's only a handful of consistent translations rendering yod vav as Yahweh, such as the New Jerusalem Bible, the Lexham English Bible, and the Revised English Version. Those three in particular are totally consistent in rendering God's name as Yahweh throughout the text. Now, I do want to mention there is another major translation uh, with a bigger market share than any of those I just mentioned called the HCSB that had made a name for itself by using Yahweh some 643 times in its 2009 as well as 2004 editions of the text but then reversed their policy in 2017, eliminating all of their 600 plus usages of the word Yahweh in favor of substituting the word Lord. So what the HCSB had done is, anytime it actually mentioned the word name, so like in the name of the Lord, that phrase, they would say the name of Yahweh. If it just said Yahweh, but it wasn't, didn't use the word name right next to it, they would translate it Lord. So it was kind of a hybrid version, a little bit, questionable as far as like consistency goes, where over 6,000 times they would translate Yahweh as Lord, but then they would have these other 600 times or however many it was where they would translate it as the proper name. And they explained their reasoning for changing from Yahweh to Lord in their very helpful document, Q&A Translation Decisions for the Christian Standard Bible. Not so easy to find, but I found it and now you know what it says. So here are their three reasons for going back to Lord instead of having God's name in there. Number one, full consistency in rendering YHWH as Yahweh would overwhelm the reader. Number two, consistent feedback from readers showed that the unfamiliarity of Yahweh was an obstacle to reading. Many reported that they felt Yahweh was an innovation, was some new fangled thing that the translation was doing. And number three, the New Testament renders Yahweh or excuse me, YHWH with the word Kyrios, which is a title Lord rather than a personal name. I'm going to read that again. The New Testament renders YHWH with the word Kyrios, which is a title Lord rather than a personal name.
So, uh, it, well, okay, let's take them one at a time. First reason, full consistency would overwhelm the reader. Look, man, you're changing the Bible. You're changing the Bible because you don't want to overwhelm the reader? If God's name, why, why does God's name, why would it overwhelm the reader? Because it's used so much throughout the Old Testament, right? Don't you think people would get used to that? It wouldn't overwhelm them anymore after like, they saw it like that all the time? Just like any Hebrew reader sees it all the time? Um, there's a second reason that um, people were unfamiliar with it. Well, why are they unfamiliar with it? Because everyone keeps substituting a title for the name of God. Uh, they will become familiar with it over time, just like other things in translation. And then their, their third reason, though, I think they do have a good point there. That's their most powerful reason by far, is that the New Testament had already established a practice of substituting the word Lord for Yahweh when they quoted the Old Testament, whether quoting from the Septuagint or doing a fresh translation themselves. And so you could make the case that, okay, well, since the New Testament writers all substituted Lord for Yahweh, which so far as the manuscript evidence goes, is the case. That's, that's what we know. Even the oldest stuff, even the papyri, we, we don't have the name of God in the New Testament, as far as I know. If you have any information otherwise, please send it, send it over to me. I'd be, love to see that. But um, So if that's the case, then, then Christian translators can say, oh, we're just following the precedent set by the people that wrote the New Testament. They were inspired by God. They're authoritative. So we're just following their example. That is actually probably the strongest case you can make for it. However, the fact remains. As a translator, you're still changing the Bible. You're not translating it. You're changing it. What gives you the right to change it? You know, because later on in the New Testament they changed it? Okay, well, that doesn't necessarily give you the right to change it in the Old Testament, does it? Uh, so I think that argument is ultimately insufficient to really make the case. Now, I know that Jewish people substituted the word Adonai, which is the word for Lord, for God's proper name. And I understand that they did that out of respect, out of a fear of breaking the, uh, was it the third commandment, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. But here's the thing, Jewish people, by and large, do know that God has a proper name. And they have a lot of emphasis on read, uh, reading, flu, uh, some sort, maybe not fluency, but uh, reading knowledge of Hebrew even to this day. In order to get bar mitzvah or bar mitzvah, you need to be able to read the text. So you're going to see it. You're going to know it. You're not going to say it, but you're going to know it. Here, but here's the problem with Christians. With Christians, we don't, we don't have this like, close relationship to the original language. So like, if you translate out, the name of God, 6,800 times or however many it is, then that's lost. It's just lost. There is no bar mitzvah where somebody's going to read Hebrew and they'll be like, oh yeah, you know, God's true name, yeah, we can't say that, but this is what it... There is none of that. There is none of that knowledge, right? And most preachers are not going to bring it up because it is kind of a complicated subject, right? So what we're ended up with is confusion and ambiguity where we see Lord over here and then we see Lord in the New Testament and we think, oh, Lord is Lord. Uh, and there's all this confusion. Whereas if we ha just translate it, what it says, then that is really solved. So hopefully as time goes on, courageous translation teams will increasingly favor honesty over tradition on this issue here. I've left out one major issue we need to address on this topic. And that is 
the whole issue of gender. Now, originally I was going to cover gender in this episode, but as I did research on the subject, what I learned just mushroomed into this huge full-length episode where it became clear to me that the whole issue of gender and Bible translation has driven so much over the last 30 years that it really does deserve its own episodes. So we're going to save the whole subject of how do you translate gender in Bible, English Bibles for next time as we continue in our quest to understand how we got the Bible. Well, that's it for this episode. I would love to hear more from you on this. If you have any questions or comments, come on to restitudio.org and look for episode 343, Bible Translation Default Decisions. And would love to hear what your views are on the, on each of these different subjects. I, other than God's name, I, I tried to steer clear of inserting my own opinion on uh, which way I think translators should go on each of these other issues. Uh, but for God's name, I am fairly settled and passionate about it. Uh, whereas these other ones, I can see translations going either way, depending on what their overall translation philosophy is. What do you think? Come online and let me know what you think. Also, just so you know, in the show notes for this episode, I've got a bibliography of about seven books related to Bible translation that may be of help to you if you're interested in further research on this subject, as well as a link to the article from the Christian Standard Bible called Q&A, Translation Decisions for the Christian Standard Bible. And just so you know, they recently updated that Bible again in the year 2020, so it's actually a little bit difficult to find the document that I referenced in this episode, which was the ch- the changes from the 2009 edition to the 2017, uh, because now if you go to their site, they have the document that discusses the difference between the 2017 and the 2020 version. Uh, So I have it in the links for the show notes for this episode if you would like to take a look at that. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, If you'd like to support Restitudio, just come on to restitudio.org where you can donate. Thanks, everyone, who has done that. It's really helped a lot. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.